Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Optimizing Long-Term Care with Guideline-Recommended Systemic Treatment Options for Von Hippel-Lindau Disease-Associated Renal Cell Carcinoma. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck & Company, Incorporated. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Yonash. I'm professor of medicine at UTMD Anderson Cancer Center, and I'd like to introduce my co-moderator, Dr. Mateen. Hello, everyone. I'm Serena Mateen, professor of urology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. This program is aimed at reviewing multidisciplinary approaches that can optimize care of our patients with renal cell carcinoma in von Hippel-Lindau disease. So let's begin by understanding the current therapeutic situation and the existing unmet needs. Serena, let's start with the features of VHL disease. So when we look at the features of VHL disease, there is major and minor features. The two malignancies that develop in this disease are clear cell RCC and pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Having said that, some of these benign conditions can also be consequential with patients. Now, the way we approach this disease is based on data that shows that tumors less than three centimeters have an incredibly low likelihood of local or distant aggression. And so this guideline, more so than a rule, is what we use to help determine when we should pull the trigger for intervention once they get to be about three centimeters or higher. And these are the various options that we have available, which we want to apply judiciously because we need to keep in mind that reoperative partial nephrectomy is a limited option. The surgery doesn't get doubly hard the second time. It's almost logarithmically more difficult. And this gets even worse as we have to intervene more. And what we can see is that there's a gradual progression of metastatic risk as tumors get larger. So clearly an almost direct link between tumor size and local and metastatic progression that occurs. It is an absolute threshold. It's again, a gradual risk. The risk between a 3.5 or 4 centimeter versus a 3 is still a minor one, but still an incrementally larger one. So that's something to keep in mind as we approach treatment options for these patients. And so one treatment that has recently entered our armamentarium and has been approved, particularly for this population, is a HIF2-alpha blocker called Velzutifan. And this has really created a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of how we can approach these patients. Eric, can you share with us your thoughts about this paradigm shift? Serena, we certainly now have a Belzutifan as an option for patients with von Hippel-Lindau disease and can be applied judiciously and really has a clear benefit for some patients. And in the NCCN guidelines, we also have as useful under circumstances a bisopinib, which is a TKI where it's not FDA approved, but there are decent data demonstrating that this is a therapeutic option for a subset of patients. Next, let's review the efficacy expectations of the recommended treatment options for VHL-associated RCC. Let's review the efficacy expectations of the recommended treatment options for VHL-associated RCC. Eric, can you review the data for Balzutifan? Absolutely. So the drug was approved with a registrational study with 61 patients. It was non-randomized. The primary endpoint was objective response rate in the renal cell carcinomas in these individuals. And what we saw with the original publication was an objective response rate in the high 40%. But with further updates, we see the objective response rate rising to 64% with about 7% CRs and importantly, no patients with PD as best response. 
longitudinal follow-up of these data really do demonstrate that with additional months of follow-up, we're seeing that the objective response rates are increasing rather than decreasing, and we're starting to see a CR rate. If we look at other lesions that these individuals develop, for example, hemangioblastomas and pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, we're seeing that there's a robust objective response rate in the hemangioblastomas and even more importantly in the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, where we're seeing an objective response rate with updated data of 44% with hemangioblastomas and 91% with the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. In comparison with pizopinib, where we published this paper a few years ago, we saw the objective response rate in renal lesions was 52%, in the CNS was 4%, and in the pancreatic lesions, 53%. So reasonable data. But Dr. Mateen, what do you think about this in terms of comparing contrasting these agents? Yeah, I think the data provides some promise in terms of trying to obtain some global control of their multi-organ manifestations. Clearly, the data for belzutifan seems to be somewhat better, but I think having that option, particularly for those who prescribe the drugs, such as yourself, and in particular patient scenarios, I think it's nice to be able to have sort of a backup in that regard. And for us urologists, these options have really allowed us to better tailor our interventions. So by having these agents available, it gives us a new option for individuals. Previously, it was observation followed by some sort of ablative intervention. And now in a subset of individuals, we can think about potentially using systemic therapy to either stabilize or reduce the size of VHL disease-related lesions. So in the next session, let's review the safety profiles of guideline-recommended systemic treatment options for patients with VHL-associated RCC. Maintaining quality of life is a key goal of therapy. Let's discuss the safety profile of the recommended treatment options. Eric, what did you see in terms of safety with Belzutifan? So this was a relatively well-tolerated agent. There were three major side effects that we were looking for. The first was anemia, which we did see in a subset of individuals. Fatigue was definitely something we saw as well. And at least in the metastatic disease setting, there was hypoxemia. We didn't see a clear signal for that with this patient population, but we're able to manage the anemia with erythropoietin stimulating agents in practice and also with dose reductions. In comparison, when we look at the key treatment-related adverse events associated with pizopinib, we're seeing slightly different spectrum of toxicities. We're seeing that fatigue was definitely something that occurred in these individuals. Transaminitis occurred in a subset of individuals in grade three in some of the patients. Hypertension, which is again a class effect, and some nausea, dysgeusia, proteinuria, and hair color change. So Eric, can you tell us how do you manage these adverse events in your practice? Yeah, it's really a question of having a dialogue with the patient, making sure that we're looking at the important things, which would be, for example, checking hemoglobin on a monthly basis. Second is I ask all of my patients to buy a pulse oximeter so that they can check their oxygenation level at home and report back to us. And the third is really making sure that they're able to perform their activities that they want, that the fatigue that can occur with this drug is not getting in the way of their lives. Eric, how much of the fatigue is secondary to anemia versus an independent factor? We think it's independent because we're seeing the fatigue in individuals with reasonable hemoglobins. Thank you. And next, we'll provide multidisciplinary strategies that can enhance the care of patients with VHL-associated RCC.
Multidisciplinary care is crucial for the treatment of patients with VHL-associated RCC. So let's discuss how Serena and I incorporate this multidisciplinary approach into our practice. Serena, why don't you start? I would be happy to. So we do need to recognize it's a chronic condition with patients experiencing multiple interventions in different multiple body parts. You do want providers who have familiarity and experience with VHL disease and recognizing some of the signs and symptoms of VHL as well as the consequences of treatment. It's helpful to have an educational support infrastructure and a multidisciplinary team that can be actively engaged in their treatment and be able to work with the rest of the teams in coordinating sometimes complex care. And so the multidisciplinary team management in VHL is very key. It's helpful to have one main person who directs this and who can effectively, efficiently, and thoughtfully engage all the different specialists that are needed. Not everybody needs to be involved with every patient, and it can be very patient-specifically applied. So to get a little bit more specific, if I see a patient who I'm concerned has VHL disease and let's say we confirm it genetically, my first step really is to get Dr. Yonash involved since he runs a VHL care center and can also comprehensively evaluate the patient for their other multi-organ manifestations and decide on triggers for these. Conversely, Dr. Yonash may have a patient that he sees and who requires renal intervention. And Eric, can you share with us a little bit of what you go through in terms of deciding how to prioritize referrals? Yeah, absolutely. And the way I sort of see my clinic's role is that we don't have subject matter expertise in the subspecialties, but we ensure that patients do get to the subspecialists that need to take care of them. And so we help with that coordination. And by centralizing that coordination, we try as hard as possible to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks and we really deliver the comprehensive care that these patients need. Yeah, that's great. And I think especially as on the surgical side, we sometimes can be very narrowly focused in terms of what we do. It's important to remember for these patients that while we're trying to manage their kidney disease, they may be having symptoms from their hemangioblastomas or have difficulty with vision with their retinal disease or may need interventions for those. And so it does really require putting it in the context of what the patient experience is, what's going on with them. In the final session, we'll focus on long-term strategies that can maximize survivorship for our patients with VHL-associated RCC. VHL-associated RCC requires long-term treatment. Let's discuss how we maintain quality of life and enhance survivorship for our patients. Eric, let's first talk about what happens after belzutifan therapy. We clearly see before versus after initiation of belzutifan that the number of surgical procedures in these individuals drops. And this does have a direct effect on their quality of life. So I do think that we do need to highlight some of the considerations of pharmacotherapy for VHL disease. As shown by Dr. Yonash, while there are complete responses, these are very low in incidence, 7% in this study. And we do see a very good partial response rate. And the other thing that we know about tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy is that there can be resistance that develops over time. And so really what's needed is not just one treatment of mindset approach where we just put these patients on a drug, but an initial multidisciplinary approach that's strategic with both the urologist and the medical oncologist evaluating initial surgery versus initial pharmacotherapy. 
And at which point does intervention, whether surgery or ablation, play a role after the pharmacotherapy? Perhaps the pharmacotherapy is an enabler where we go from something that's not really operable or able to preserve kidney function well to something that with significant size reduction of the tumor, we can then apply these interventions in a very strategic fashion. Eric, did you have some comments to make in that regard? I completely agree with you, Serena. This is a conversation between the patient, the surgeon, the medical oncologist, defining what our goals are and ensuring long-term that the quality of life of the patient is maintained in the utmost manner. And I think part of what's also key is the conversation between the two specialists. We approach things from different mindsets. The medical oncologist may not always appreciate the nuances and the difficulties of intervention with renal preservation and some of the anatomical concerns, for example. On the other hand, as urologists, we may not appreciate the kinetics of the pharmacotherapy. And one thing that I certainly have struggled with is the time it takes for the response to occur. And sometimes I'm sitting on the edge of my seat thinking, Eric, I think we need to intervene. And his role is to sort of let me know that with time, we can see these responses. There's a push-pull there. And the consequence of that push-pull, hopefully, is better outcomes for the patient. So in conclusion, it's critical that the team consisting of the various specialists and the patient make decisions about how to move forward on the management of various VHL-related lesions. Systemic therapies definitely play a role in 2023, but they're only part of the puzzle. And that discussion and those goals need to be clearly outlined. Serena, anything you'd like to add? Eric, I think you're completely on point. Uh, for the urologists out there, definitely advocate for your role in terms of strategically applying renal intervention, but be open to the ability of working together with the multidisciplinary team in formulating that plan. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.